Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, a podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me are Sharon Kamathi, Editor at Fintech Futures. Hello. And Nick Kerrigan, former Managing, Managing Director for Future Payments at Barclaycard, and now a pontificator on all things payments and innovation. Hi, everyone. First things first, I need to allay your fears, dear listeners. We're not all sat in the same room. Please don't worry. Uh, we are recording the podcast through the miracle of technology and are all sat safely at home. We'll be chatting with Nick about the future of cash as a payment system later on in the podcast. But first, we've all brought a story with us today with some big numbers from the past week or so to talk about. Uh, Nick, perhaps as the, as the guest, perhaps you'd, you'd like to go first with what number's been catching your eye. Thanks very much, uh, Alex. Well, um, my number for this uh, podcast is uh, 48. Uh, and the reason it's 48 um, is because uh, 48 hours uh, was how long it took uh, a group of fintech people uh, this week to create a, a working prototype of what they called uh, COVID credit. And uh, COVID credit is basically um, a way for um, self-employed people um, to be able to evidence and certify their loss of income as a result of the uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis. Um, this all started with a tweet from uh, uh, Simon Taylor, um, who is at 11FS, um, who was kind of uh, noodling on the way that uh, self-employed people could show that they actually had um, a, an income. Uh, and this was picked up by uh, by a couple of other London-based fintechs, Fronted and, and Credit Qdos. Uh, and what they put together was a, a solution uh, that responded to the challenge for non-salaried workers to, uh, to be able to access that government relief. And they created a solution uh, using open banking, um, which uh, quickly uh, you know, uses a simple process to generate a, a proof statement uh, and evidences their, their income. And the reason I thought this was uh, this was a really uh, great story was first because it will be a solution to allow the five million self-employed people in the UK to actually be able to prove their income and therefore access government support in a similar way to the employed. Um, but secondly, I thought the the great thing about this was um, that it kind of showed uh, the collaborative nature of fintech at its best. Um, you know, people from several different organisations coming together, working over the weekend very quickly to, you know, it literally in 48 hours to create that, that working uh, prototype because it was the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, I've been following the tweets uh, from Frontage Jamie Campbell, who's, you know, they've been taking this prototype now round to uh, the Treasury and to people in government to demonstrate that it really is possible uh, to evidence the income of, of self-employed. Uh, you know, and we're now hoping that the government will introduce support for for, for self-employed persons uh, in the latest set of set of measures. Um, I think the other thing this story showed, which was great, was that using kind of open banking and using cloud platforms, you can actually assemble a solution um, which is workable. It, you know, in a in a totally different way and at a totally different speed than than was would have been possible uh, in the past. So, you know, the speed of fintech was also demonstrated from an infrastructure point of view through this story as well. Yeah, fantastic. I think you've you, you've covered it brilliantly there, Nick. I mean, I was going to say exactly what you're going to say that it was a. Uh, it's crazy how fast things can move in this industry, and sometimes you can forget just how 
groups of people working collaboratively with a system like open banking can produce something that can really help the end user. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic example of that. And I, I think we're going to end up with a, a, a trio of coronavirus sort of themed stories this week because, because my number is, uh, is uh, 6 billion, which is a, a pretty hefty figure. And it's the, it's the amount of money that, uh, the global bank HSBC has set aside for what it's calling itself its biggest structural overhaul in, in history. Um, and now that's under threat and could go up in smoke because of coronavirus. The changes would have seen the consolidation of its middle and back office into a single infrastructure, a uh, merger of its retail banking, private banking and wealth management divisions. Uh, it's exiting from what it deems to be unprofitable markets and dropping of high profile clients. But all of that is now looking to face a pretty lengthy delay um, because they, they can't exit from these poor performing markets anymore. And they're, they're being hampered by local legislation that's enforcing support for businesses and small and medium enterprises. And of course, the, the volatile market. And they had originally announced and they were putting forward this overhaul that there were going to be uh, thousands of jobs lost. And today, in fact, Nick, you pointed out to me before we, we started recording, in fact, that they have now frozen that process uh, so it's all up in the air right now for hsbc at a, so this this massive dramatic overhaul has come at, uh, has come at a time probably the worst time now with coronavirus causing all this market disruption uh, yeah sharon what, what are your thoughts on, on this story yeah well um i was actually going to add that it's interesting how this is not the only institution that's been affected as well by coronavirus and their strategies in the future. I mean, we saw earlier in the week, the EU decided to redraw its digital strategy and important legislation as well is likely to be delayed um, just because of this crisis. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see how people's strategies mold and adapt and change throughout this whole process. How about you, Nick? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think you'll see different stages to this crisis playing out. Um, the market players that I that I uh, know and, uh, and talk to, I, I think they're very much focused on at the moment getting through the immediate, uh, you know, next few days, weeks um, around actually ensuring that their you know that their services remain fully operational, that they can cope with any disruption that might come with any of their. Uh, partners that their all their employees can effectively w- work in this new kind of re- fully remote way. Uh, you know, obviously some companies were fully remote, but most financial institutions uh, weren't fully remote. Um, so, so I think they're kind of working and managing through that, and that's really the focus. And you know, therefore, you know, the you know the the, the, the HSBC's decision um, kind of makes sense because you know there are more almost you know really immediate priorities to to, to deal with. I think then when as we get into the medium term of this, then I think we'll start to see some uh, impacts from behavioral changes and also kind of economic impacts kind of starting to play through. And that will be the point at which, uh, you know, banks and fintechs alike start really thinking about whether they should be pivoting uh, their strategy, maybe responding to some of the behaviors, maybe a, a real necessity to respond because maybe some of the businesses they're working with um, have to reconfigure their business lines or revenue streams. Excellent. And uh, I know that uh, Sharon's got a, got a third coronavirus theme story. We'll, we'll try not to make the entire podcast themed around uh, around the ongoing pandemic, but it, it is something that's grabbing the headlines. Uh, so Sharon, what, what number have you, have you brought with you to, to the podcast today? 
Yeah, I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer and, and add to the coronavirus news, but I've brought 45, and that's 45 pounds um, as the UK Finance, which is the collective voice for the banking and payments industry, announced the change from £30 uh, contactless card limit to £45. Um, the move is basically in line with other European countries as well, such as Norway and the Netherlands, uh, where they're trying to increase their contactless limit on payments uh, before your PIN has to be entered. Uh, this is both from a uh, health point of view, so just making sure in terms of people using cash and swapping cash that uh, the person at the till doesn't have to handle um, cash that might have been um, in someone who's got coronavirus or somewhere down the chain might have had coronavirus down the line, so just removing that risk. Um, but also it's to show that shift towards more digital usage um, just throughout pretty much this entire year, we're probably going to keep seeing that trend um, as we also had some statistics where um, the uh, number of people who are using contactless payments has actually risen this year. So um, it looks like the push towards uh, contactless, cashless is moving quite fast. And I know that that's something that we were actually going to address um, as a topic. So uh, perhaps I shall let Nick uh, share his thoughts on this one. So what do you think, Nick? Yeah, thank, thanks, Sharon. I mean, the, the rising, you know, the, uh, the limit to, to uh, contact this limit to £45, I think is, is absolutely the, you know, the right thing to do at this, this stage. As you mentioned, a number of countries are doing this, you know, uh, Norway, Netherlands, Ireland, you know, amongst, amongst others. Um, and I think in the UK context, this kind of all started, I think, from a, a story in the Daily Telegraph about potentially the WHO saying that cash was uh, and somehow kind of uh, dirty or potentially, you know, carrying uh, coronavirus more than others. And the WHO then kind of kind of backtracked on that and they said, oh, well, we didn't think that cash was any more dangerous than maybe other surfaces. But certainly what, what you saw was then uh, central banks taking some action um, in terms of lengthening the cash recirculation times um, so that, the you know, if there was a risk, it was it was very much re reduced. Um, and so, yes, the, you know, the, the ability for people to use contactless for more transactions is you know, definitely a logical way to go and kind of follows the trend that's been happening in the UK uh, for the last few years on the 10 year journey of, of, of contactless. Um, look, I think in 2018, we're something like six billion pounds a month of, of volume uh, on contactless. And, you know, since then, I think, the, you know, the volumes have only only grown. So um, this 45 pounds uh, piece up from 30 will definitely give contactless a push. I think uh, that subject of the contactless limit segues nicely into our, the main topic of our podcast, which is uh, namely the customer and behavioral trends driving the future of payments and banking, especially when it comes to cash. So, so Nick, considering what we've just been talking about, I, I'm actually going to hit you with a huge question straight off the bat. It's, it's the way I do things on this podcast, I'm, I'm afraid. Do you think coronavirus is perhaps the, one of the biggest challenges that cash has faced as a payments vector? 
<laughs> so, well, thank you for that question. That is the big, the big one, right? Um, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a payments person, um, you know, rather than a politician on this. So I'll give you a very, uh, straightforward answer. Uh, and my, my straightforward answer is yes. I think cash is facing, um, its greatest challenge, uh, right now. I was particularly struck by, uh, by another number I saw two days ago, which was, uh, came from Link, the ATM network. Uh, and Link said that since the, the crisis has happened over the last few days, um, that cash uh, usage and ATM usage had already fallen by 50% in the UK. And that's five zero, not one five percent. So five zero percent um, in a matter of f- few days. And that's, that's a dramatic shift um, in terms of our, our payment behaviors. You know, usually changes in payment behaviors we would expect to happen in uh, you know, a minimum of months and more, more usually years, not in a matter of, of days. Um, so, you know, obviously in the, in the UK, we've been seeing this trend from cash to electronic payments happening over a period of years in any case. This links to an underlying trend. So if you look at the, uh, the UK finance data, uh, for example, um, basically, the crossover between cash and debit cards happened back in 2017. And then if you look at the 2018 numbers, debit cards accounted for 42% of, uh, of consumer payment transactions and cash for 31%. So that gap had already opened up on the 20, if you see the 2018 data. We don't yet have the, uh, the 2019 data. I assume that will come with the, the usual cycle of UK uh, finances, uh, payments market review reports um, in June time. Um, but I would be very surprised if that gap had not uh, opened up further. So, you know, say even if debit cards were something like 50% and cash 25%, even if it was like that, you've then got another 50% decline uh, in cash usage on the top of that. I, it, you know, if the, if the link uh, report and, and uh, reports and data are, are correct. Um, so, so I think that what that signals to really, um, and that 50% signals to, it's not just an acceleration, but possibly actually a, a, a effectively a non-linear shift in cash versus electronic payments uh, payments usage. So, uh, you know, the answer to your your big question has to be yes. It is facing its 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 greatest challenge. It's been on a a certain trajectory, but the you know COVID nineteen crisis um, is proving a massive jolt. Yeah, I agree with you there. But um, do you think the predictions of a cashless society is just pure science fiction? Like, can we actually ever be truly cashless? I know that I was speaking to um, someone at Kuda Bank um, based in Nigeria just yesterday, um, and he noted that people were still using cash quite heavily, um, although there has been a turn now towards trying to just use your um, money transfers via your phone and various apps. Um but there is still within these countries, such as Nigeria and the global south, a high reliance on cash. So can we actually be cashless? I think it's a really I think it's a really interesting question. And, and the question in some ways comes around to what do we mean by cashless? Um, because we all talk, you know, quite a lot about cashless society. Well, what is what is that that really um, to 
to my mind, a cashless society is one where actually kind of cash is irrelevant rather than saying cash is actually illegal or doesn't exist. Uh, and so I think it's if you think about it being cash being largely irrelevant, that's the kind of place we started to get to in the UK with, with, with checks, at least for, con, you know, everyday consumer payment transactions. You'd be hard pressed nowadays to go into a shop and buy something with, with a check. And people don't really feel the need to, to do that. Um, so I, I think the where we could head towards with, with cash is, is a similar situation. And, and if you talk to uh, people uh, in some of the, the countries where, you know, the advance of a cashless society is, is far further on than it is in the UK, say, South Korea or, say, Sweden, it's not that they don't have cash. You know, cash in circulation in those countries does remain but they don't use it for regular payments. You know, they might, you know, you might keep some cash in a drawer for some kind of a, uh, you know, emergency or some rare situation where the electronic payment system isn't, isn't working. But for everyday kind of what you're, you and I just as people will be doing every day, that cash has become irrelevant. And I think that, that if you view it in that lens, then it's, it's not a science fiction. Then it's uh, something that is kind of, on the on the horizon now do i think we will ever kind of truly get rid of cash completely or abolish it or something like that i think that's that's highly doubt doubtful and um you know it may have ultimately you know be digitized cash but i don't think it i don't think cash is ever going to completely go away because few payment forms ever really completely go away once, once they've existed and since these payment forms probably won't go away, um, how can financial services firms cater to this new technology and new trends while still remaining available for those who are cash heavy, such as small, medium sized enterprises, tradesmen um, and others such as the, the people in the global south? So, so I think that's that's a really kind of thorny problem, one that needs uh, needs kind of answers at, at a few different levels. Um, the, the first answer I think is around is really important around financial inclusion. Um, because what we know um, is in the UK context is that approximately five million people already rarely use cash. So uh, you know five million out of or 60 million odd people in the UK. Equally there are also two million people who are mainly cash dependent and, and use you know, dependent on cash for all their for their everyday needs, and those are the people that we, you know, we really don't want to have uh, ending up in a situation where they're being excluded by the move towards, uh, you know, a lower cash or cashless uh, cashless um, society. So I think one of the things that we can do is ensure that those people have appropriate solutions to meet their needs, and those solutions could be digital solutions. Uh, uh, you know, enabling easy to use frictionless digital payments for the needs uh, that those that, that those those groups in, in in society have. So I think that's that's the first answer. Um, I think the second answer is then around um, around sort of the the ensuring um, that cash actually can remain viable in this situation where it's a much lower proportion of payment transactions than previously. And I think there's a lot of work really still to be done in actually 
transitioning the, the, the cash infrastructure towards a lower cost environment because the cash infrastructure that we have at the moment was designed for a situation where, you know, cash was, you know, the primary uh, consumer payment type. If it's going to be cash is, you know, running at a much, much lower level, how does that, infra- can that infrastructure be flexed to run at a lower cost Base because you know cash at the moment has a really high fixed cost base. So um, being able to move the the cash infrastructure to a a lower cost, um, more flexible cost um, infrastructure um, is is the sort of second answer. And then the third answer is then thinking about businesses who tend to be cash heavy. And and as you mentioned, there are uh, you know some small businesses tradespersons in particular who who are often uh, cash dependent i think the the answer on that is is also to be able to give uh digital solutions that are relevant for and and affordable uh for those for those industries um equally though you know there are some reasons that people take cash at the tradespersons take cash at the moment which are around tax and other um uh other you know motivations to use cash and I ultimately think that it's not fair to ask other businesses to subsidize those businesses, um, give, you know, and, and because they're using cash and, and, and maybe not paying uh, tax on some of those transactions. So I think there also then is it ends up being a fairness aspect, which is which says everybody's going to have to be paying, you know, their fair share of tax in the future. But people need to be able to have uh, payment methods, payment acceptance methods that are affordable for their business? Well, those are pretty handy solutions. Um, and I assume through all these sort of solutions that you mentioned that there are also challenges for both mm. customers and financial services Absolutely. firms. So what about that when looking at ramping up payment processes? What are those challenges? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, a, few, there are a few challenges. So if you think about the, uh, the digital solutions, right? Um, and, and actually, you think about the coronavirus kind of uh, situation we're in, in at the moment. We are all going to end up, you know, uh, Friday we are, we are, uh, we come out, we each come out the end of this crisis, right? Um, we're all going to end up much more digitally savvy than, than before and digitally skilled. And so, digitally upskilling in terms of consumers having the the skills to be able to use more digital solutions and also firms including small businesses being able to have to, to use those the, the, those solutions that's a, that's an, an important aspect and one we shouldn't you use sight sight of um, if you think about um, you know Barclays where uh, you know spent 13 years of, of my my career um, you know one great initiative the Barclays has is around uh, what it calls digital eagles which are people who uh, are in the branches and their purpose is to be able to help customers acquire digital skills, not only banking skills, but other skills around being able to have an email account, use a web browser, all of those things. Um, so I think that's an important aspect is that, you know, is, is in terms of in, in terms of skills. The other important aspect, I think, is is, is actually about uh, here about scale. So can newer payment processes uh, scale quickly in response to uh, consumer demand. Uh, and we've seen uh, through the crisis so far that, you know, a number of uh, merchants 
uh, say in the in the supermarket space, have really had challenges about scaling up um, direct to consumer uh, services. You know, Ocado uh, recently uh, had to uh, effectively shut down its its service and then reboot it um, because of the massive growth in demand. I think the Ocado CEO said they had now have ten times as many customers signed up as they had before. So the ability to scale. Uh, alternative payment methods, particularly digital payment methods, I think is a is is a is a uh, a key uh, challenge here. And then ensuring that the right economics are in play um, for say bank to bank payments, I think is also is also key because all of those services do uh, you know do have to be uh, affordable and do have to be uh, accessible to be able to to scale. So then, what do you think is next? What do you think needs to be set in place to drive a true change in the way we pay, whether it's with or without cash? Do you think there needs to be more regulation, uh, different sort of techs uh, coming up in the future, different attitudes? So uh, I, think the, I think the change is happening anyway, whether we like it or not. So the, the, the trends that I, that I described toward, from cash towards electronic payments – that, that's been happening already, and that's been driven by the consumer, driven by you know you and I in our changing behaviours. The crisis, I think, will provide a, a non-linear shift in that. So uh, a, you know, a big boost to electronic payments and and a uh, a reduction again in in cash payments, which will set us far closer to being. Uh, a cashless society in, or a cashless society as defined as one where cash is is ir- irrelevant now for us to really be able to cope with that change that will happen um there's a few things that needs that really need uh need to change one is therefore a really big focus on the on people who could be potentially um excluded obviously there's a there's a big public debate that's been going on about access to cash and measures to ensure um, access to cash. I think that should laser focus on those uh, those two million people who are mainly using cash cash today, and, and make, ensuring that they're not being um, they're not being left behind. I think the second thing that needs to be to ch- change, and I think you know that people are alive to this this challenge. The th- second thing that needs to change is is a is a uh, a real hard look at the the cash infrastructure itself and how we can cost effectively ensure that people continue to have access to cash in the future because the risk is is that infrastructure is not reformed then cash could just simply become econo- uneconomic so uneconomic for merchants to take cash because the, the the ratio of volume to to cost just doesn't work for them so so people who who think that it's important that access to cash is is maintained? I think that the that there needs to be a focus uh, by those practitioners and, the, and those market participants are, on ensuring that the cash infrastructure is economic um, in in the future. And that might mean that might well mean some different kinds of of cash infrastructure options need to be considered for example um, looking at ways instead of having uh, such a you know a wide kind of ATM network 
uh, instead having um, a, an, an, an infrastructure where um, small businesses can recycle their cash out more effectively. So more like a, a, a much more widespread version of the cashback scheme that has been uh, taken place in the, in the past. So now we come to the final segment of the show, Fintech Jail. This is where our guest submits a buzzword, a trend, a technology, or even a company that irks them and argues why they need to be put away for good. Uh, Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail. So Nick, what do you think deserves to be put away for good uh, with the key thrown away? Uh, yeah, so so I've brought today um, a buzzword that really kind of irks me, and it irks me because it's one of those buzzwords we hear all the time, and uh, it can mean so many different things. So, uh, so my candidate for the fintech, uh, the fintech jail, is integration, and the reason I've chosen integration is it's seemingly a simple word, but it has so many divergent meanings amongst fintech professionals. Um, and, and it's most simple. It means uh, products that can connect and work efficiently and in real time. But here's the nub of it, right? Ha- depending on who you're speaking to, integration could mean uh, a single sign-on. It could mean logged into multiple things with one click. It could mean a bi-directional kind of data flow, so data moving between technologies. It could mean sort of somebody says some, you know, screen scraping some of these details, or it could mean a, an API integration, or indeed it could mean something much, much deeper into the uh, the, the technology stack between uh, two different companies. And the, and the reason I hate this term is because people kind of love to, to band it about because they want to seem that they are working or associated between different companies and that they're, you know, all sort of really highly collaborative. Um, but when you dig into the detail of, okay, so what is your integration, then it, it unfortunately it, it oftentimes means a lot lighter thing than you'd be hoping it is. Uh, and so where you're thinking, oh, I actually they've connected up the APIs, often it's a lot more uh, – it's a lot more basic than that. And maybe it's just that somebody has, uh, has put somebody else's app inside, a, 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 you know, inside their own shell and then all, every, all the whole you know, experiences they'd handed off to, an, to another company. So, uh, so I think integration should be, uh, should be thrown in the jail because, frankly, it's, it's far too vague to be meaningful. Before Sharon and I sort of go over it, what, what, what's the worst example you've had of someone using it as a catch-all term and, and not really understanding what it meant? Well, so, so I, I'm not going to name names here, but I, I had a situation where I've seen uh, somebody had, had claimed that they had an integration uh, between uh, their platform and another platform. Uh, and uh, basically all that happened is, you know, you opened up, you had the web page open of of one platform uh, and there was a little kind of icon that took you over to the to the landing page of the other platform that 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 isn't integration for me i think in- integration is an interesting one um obviously when, when we started the idea for fintech jail we thought we'd get the the usual suspects like blockchain and ai and we have had those as well but um uh, sharon what, what's your thoughts on, on integration going into the into the jail I actually think that I might put it into jail. It seems like it means too many different things 
to different people. Um, and I'm not a fan of that. If there was just going to be a term that everyone can understand and say, yep, this is what integration means, then I might let it free. But for me, it looks like it's going to go in for at least a minimum of 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you, you are well, very persuasively argued. I think uh, I think terms that are overly generic definitely have a place in the fintech jail. So yeah, we'll be we'll be slamming the the gate on that one and, and locking them away. Uh, maybe in the future we'll have someone who wants to argue that it can come out. But for now, integration into the fintech jail it goes. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening to What the Fintech. Before we sign off, though, uh, we've got some socials to plug. Um, Sharon, why don't you go first? Where can we find you online? You can find me at Fintech Kits on Twitter, and you can just search my name, Sharon Kits Kimathy, on LinkedIn. So give me a shout. And what about you, Nick? Yeah, so you can find me on three places. You can find me on LinkedIn, so Nick Kerrigan on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter at Nick underscore Kerrigan. Uh, and please check out my monthly blog. So I'm blo- uh, Nick Kerrigan on Blogspot. And uh, the uh, the monthly blog for March just got posted last week and talks about consumer behaviours during the coronavirus crisis. Cool. Uh, I would recommend that if you're trying to find me, don't Google my name because you'll get all sorts of results. Uh, but you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at adhamilton 91 uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can also um, find me on the FinTech Futures website. Uh, and you can also find FinTech Futures itself on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, that's it for this week's What the FinTech. But until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.